What's up, everyone? This is episode number 54 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on my social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. This show is also part of the Bench Clear Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at Bench underscore Clear underscore Media. And Twitter is just at Bench Clear Media, all one word. Uh, speaking of social media and Bench Clear Media, I do want to congratulate the winner of our Optic Cello Box from this week's contest, um, which is at 2-3-Jumper. So congrats, Josh. Your box will be in the mail shortly. Okay, last week I presented a breakdown of NBA card history from the early 1900s to 2003. I thought this was going to be a two-parter. Once I started this week's outline, I realized I needed to either cut a lot of stuff out or extend it to three. So... There are actually going to be three episodes in this series. With that being said, there are still some years that will get skimmed over. Um, There are some years that just deserve a lot more attention. So just keep that in mind. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. At the end of last week's episode, I talked about a teenager from Akron, Ohio that was poised to take the NBA by storm. And I figure some of you weren't watching basketball around that time or collecting around that time. But you guys are familiar with all the Zion hype that we experienced not long ago. And really, we're still in that phase. I feel like Zion is without a doubt the most hyped player since LeBron James. But I still feel like the LeBron James hype was greater than the Zion hype. And keep in mind, that was without Twitter. That was without Instagram. That was without Facebook. There was no YouTube then. Remember, we had YouTube videos of Zion dunking... Um, several years ago. So all of this LeBron hype without all of that stuff was simply unreal. Um, And at that time then, because we didn't have all those things, um, ESPN, I know ESPN is still a big deal, but it was a really big deal then. Um, The Sports Illustrated cover was a big deal then. I know ESPN first televised one of LeBron's games in 2002 when he was just 17. And in the intro to that game, they showed clips of Wilt, uh, Magic, and Bird, and Kobe. So the expectations for just a 17-year-old were very high. Um, So then on top of that, Carmelo Anthony had just won an NCAA title with Syracuse, and there were people that thought that he might become the top rookie of the class. So, you know, we look back and we talk about Dwayne Wade as well. There really wasn't the same level of excitement for him right out the gate. It was mainly LeBron and Melo. So it wasn't surprising then that all three major card companies were looking their chops. They were ready to capitalize on this excitement. And that's what happened in 2003. There were sealed box sets of just LeBron cards. There were new low-end sets being cranked out that were designed around rookies like um, Upper Deck Rookie Exclusives. Topps Rookie Matrix, Um, Topps created a set with the Bazooka branding, Fleer came out with an autographics base set where the cards weren't signed, which was kind of weird. Um, There was some really nice stuff too, though, with SP Authentic and Upper Deck Ultimate Collection. I'm not going to sit here and rattle off every single set that came out that year. Just know, though, that there was an onslaught of products. And then came the summer of 2004. I don't think anyone realized it at the time, but it was at this point that the hobby changed forever. 
Now, it would start off as a slow change, but nonetheless, our hobby would never be the same. That moment was the release of a new high-end product called Upper Deck Exquisite. And as I mentioned on the last episode, there were high-end cards before Exquisite. Um, The number of exclusively high-end products, though, was slim to none. And when word originally got out that Upper Deck was going to release a product that was $500 a box, you can imagine there was some resistance. People ask, why do we need this? And then when Upper Deck revealed that these boxes would only contain five cards, well, the backlash only intensified. Um, One of the many things that made this set intriguing, though, was that every single card in the product was numbered. Even the so-called veteran base, which at the time were just kind of tossed around like they were worthless. Now they're highly sought after. But um, the veteran base set had 42 different cards, all numbered to 225. And then the rookie base cards featured a patch and an autograph. All of these were also limited to 225 copies, with the exception of Udonis Haslam, who was undrafted, uh, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Carmela Anthony, Darko Milicic, and then, of course, LeBron James. And the base cards of those six players were numbered to 99 instead. So even though Fleer beat them to the punch for the first official RPAs with Hoops Hot Prospects, they couldn't make them for every player, and they couldn't make them for the one player that really mattered, which was LeBron James. Only Upper Deck could produce autograph or jersey cards for him. You might hear Exquisite labeled as the first real high-end basketball product, but just know that this is a lot different than some of the high-end products of today. Take National Treasures, for example. I talked about this in a previous episode, but I, I felt like the veteran checklist for last year's release was really weak, and they loaded the product with Luca cards to sort of make up for it. And you can look at the numbers. I mean, he's the, the player that has the most cards in that product. Um, that wasn't the case with Exquisite. This product was loaded with jumbo patch autos of the top players in the game like Jordan and Kobe, Kevin Garnett, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and so on and so on. The list goes on. But with all of that being said, people were still shocked at the price tag, and this product didn't move well in a lot of shops when it was first released. Um, I've talked to one collector that said boxes at his shop set for months on end before the owner finally dropped them to $300 a piece. $300 for a box of 2003 Exquisite seems crazy now. Uh, To put that into perspective, a used Jordan Redemption card. So that's one that had already been scratched and redeemed because all of the Jordan autos in that product were redemptions. It sold in December of 2019 for $75. So obviously just that alone shows that people grew to appreciate the set and the values of these cards have shot up over time. And I attribute that to three main factors. Content, scarcity, and timing. Um, Content, you know, I've talked about it. You had the veteran and the legend jumbo patches and autos. You had an exciting rookie class. You had the hype surrounding LeBron James. Um, The scarcity, everything was limited. Everything was numbered. And then the timing. Timing was everything. This set wouldn't have been as iconic if it were anchored by, let's say, a Kenyon Martin or a Darius Miles or Yao Ming or Amari Stoudemire. Instead, it was anchored by LeBron James. And his RPA became the premier card out of the premier set 
of the beginning of the high-end boom. Before I move on from 2003 and 2004, I want to make a quick note. We had three big companies producing during this time. We had a lot of hype with the rookie class. Um, On the consumer side, at least for me, I was a high schooler at the time, it seemed like things were booming. You know, things were great. Um, But behind the scenes, FLIR was really struggling. So much so that Upper Deck offered to buy FLIR out for $25 million in late 2003. Because um, some of these other companies had successfully diversified into non-sports cards. FLIR not so much. Regardless, they turned down Upper Deck's offers in the hopes that things would turn around within their sports card division. Uh, More on this later. Spoiler alert, it wouldn't. As we moved through the early 2000s, companies continued to make exclusive autograph deals with players. This was one way that they could try and get an edge over competing brands. In most cases, competition was good for the consumer, but occasionally it meant that certain players were excluded from certain sets. And I mentioned earlier that LeBron had an exclusive with Upper Deck. He wasn't the first player. Um, I know Jay Williams had one with Upper Deck in 2002. Uh, as far as rookies go, I figured there were some before that too. I None of them come to mind. Um, I know there were some veterans that had autograph deals, but that's the first rookie that comes to mind. There might have been other ones. If you know, let you know. reach out to me. Let me know. Um, so then in 2004, the top two draft picks were Dwight Howard and Emeka Okafor. And Okafor signed on to become a top spokesman. Um, Adam and I talked about this some in our Zion episode A recurring theme of the 2000s is, when faced with a choice between uh, top rookies, tops generally chose wrong. Or they never really landed any of the better ones, at least. Uh, For veterans, they did all right. There were a few years where they had Iverson and Dwayne Wade and and even Jay-Z, but uh, the rookies never seemed to work out well for them. Oddly enough, though, by the end of the season, you didn't really see... Um, as much of Dwight Howard and Emeka Okafor on the hot list, we talked about the Beckett hot list last week, it was a lot of Ben Gordon and Andre Agudala. The Bulls, which a lot of people called them the baby Bulls that year because it was a lot of young players, the Bulls were very exciting to watch. Uh, they made the hobby a lot of fun, so that also meant that Luau Dang stuff was hot. Um, Kirk Heinrich's second-year stuff was really hot. And when you combine that with the emergence of Dwayne Wade, um, you know, Beckett Magazine was already asking if 2003-2004 Exquisite was the best set ever made. So perceptions had changed quickly about that set. That was just a span of one year. Um, And I didn't mention this earlier, but supposedly Exquisite was only going to be manufactured in 2003. That didn't end up being the case at all. They made it in 2004 and 2005. And then every year until they lost their license in 2009, uh, well, at least the pro version. I know they've made exquisite since then, but it's it's not quite the same. It's not licensed. Um, speaking of losing, though, that's a good segue to talk about the biggest casualty of the 2004-2005 season. Uh, it's one that I foreshadowed not too long ago. That was Fleer. By the end of May of 2005... FLIR ceased all operations and they began liquidating all their assets. It's very similar to a Chapter 7 bankruptcy case. 
And a couple of months later, Upper Deck purchased their intellectual rights and the branding and the Fleer name for $6.1 million. And keep in mind, they had offered $25 million not long before that. So then with that changeover, sorting all of that out was quite the mess. You had a lot of collectors that had Fleer redemption cards. They weren't sure what was going to happen. Um, eventually they were instructed to send them in. I believe the exchange rate ended up being two jersey cards and an autograph for every redemption card that was mailed in. That sounds great, but a lot of people ended up losing out. Most of the cards coming back were scrubs. Uh, and then some of them were cards that hadn't even been released yet. So when guys went to, when they were player collecting somebody, you know, there were cards that weren't on checklists that were all of a sudden showing up. And it, it was just a very confusing time. The rest of the assets from Fleer then were auctioned off in September. And to be honest, it was kind of sad rehashing all of this. <laughs> I know that sounds goofy, but, um, you know, I liked Fleer. And I remember following this whole thing online when it happened. Um, I had to go back and refresh my memory a little bit, but there was a, a PDF catalog. It was like 69 pages of some of the items that you could bid on. And we're talking office furniture, light fixtures, printers, signage, uh, damage replacement stock, proofs, blanks, you name it, they had it. And then tons and tons of game-worn jerseys. Uh, you know, for one example, in the catalog, one line said assorted sports swatch materials, approximately 71 cases of cut materials. So it was a lot of stuff just thrown in. You know, you didn't always know what you were getting. And um, I read a report from someone that went to the um, site in person because you could do that at the time. And um they said there were bags of jersey pieces, there were autograph stickers, there were sheets of autographs, you know, uh, all over the place. Random singles, boxes, cases, binders, um, 800 count boxes full of redemption and replacement cards, file cabinets full of autographed baseballs and basketballs, and so on and so on. And, um, you know, I include all of that because this is an important to hobby history because this stuff still shows up even in 2020. Uh, here are a couple of recent examples. So there's a guy who's really no stranger to the card world named Dr. Brian Price. And a lot of his background deals with hockey cards and the uh, in the game set and that branding. Well, in 2016, he started a company called President's Choice. And they just came out with a multi-sport set a, a couple of months ago. And I purchased a couple of the basketball patches. Um, I told myself I wouldn't. I'm a sucker for jumbo patches. I couldn't help myself. So um, I made the purchase and then emailed about the provenance, which is probably backwards. I should probably do that the other way around. But I emailed uh, Dr. Price to ask if he had any provenance for the game-worn jerseys. And he replied, I believe that the jersey you're inquiring about was part of the Fleer auction. Um, now, for all I know, you know, it very well could have been. I don't have any reason to say it wasn't. Um, so it doesn't really scare me all that much. Uh, that might not sit well with some people, though. Now, the really scary stuff, though, is all of the uncut sheets of rare cards or the autograph cards that were forged afterwards 
or the rare credentials extras and the replacements that made their way out and got stamped afterward. Um, I think last month I saw a picture of an Alonzo Morning autographics that had a real autograph on it, and it had the sparkle foil on it like it was one of the Century Marks versions, but it didn't have the numbering. And those were hand-numbered at the time. So it would be very easy for people to take stuff like this and add the hand numbering on if, if they could um, you know, emulate the style of, of handwriting that somebody used then. Um, because it already had the foil, it had all the other characteristics of a Century Marks Auto. And this card was from 1997, so Fleer had a lot of old, rare stuff on hand still. Okay. So anyway, I'm going to move through some years a lot quicker than that. It just so happened that we had two of the biggest events in modern card history in back-to-back -back years. I wanted to make sure they got a fair amount of coverage. Uh, for a little bit then, that left us with just tops and upper deck. Remember, I'm only talking about pro cards. Um, you know, just real quick, 2005, I got to mention this. For some reason, tops decided to put celebrity rookie cards into their products and one of them I mentioned already was Jay-Z. Uh, I thought that was all right. I, underst you know, I understand the connection between hip-hop and, and basketball. The others didn't make a lot of sense to me because the group included Carmen Electra, Christy Brinkley, Jenny McCarthy, and Shannon Elizabeth. So if you ever run across any of those, they were actually from a basketball card set. Um... If you were collecting Prism in 2017, you might remember all the outrage when Panini put coaches in the set. You know, imagine if your your silver hit was a, uh, you know, a Scotty Brooks silver, right? You wouldn't be happy. Uh, well, I opened a couple of boxes of Topps Chrome in 2005 that had not only celebrities, so there was that aspect, um, but also D-leaguers. And believe it or not, some of them were decent pulls, but for the most part, it, it just didn't work. You know, if your your gold hit was a, a D-League or something, you know, that was pretty disappointing. Um, one product I really like from that year, probably doesn't get the recognition it deserves as Top's big game. That product was only around for two years. Um, we'd had jumbo patches and other products by now, but I consider these big game patches to kind of be a precursor to Immaculate. Um, so even though, you know, one manufacturer already bit the dust, this shows that there was still some innovation in the market, which was, and in the, um, in the hobby as a whole, which was good. Um, come the 2006-2007 season, Upper Deck started using the FLIR branding for basketball sets. I thought this was pretty cool for several reasons. Number one, it gave us the chance to get our first FLIR relics and autos for LeBron James and Michael Jordan. Uh, number two, it gave us a chance to get signed buybacks of Jordan's rookie card. And then number three, they also brought back credentials with the mirrored numbering. So that was pretty cool. Um, Upper Deck, speaking of them, they made a substantial offer to buy Tops in the spring of 2007. But um, Tops ended up selling to a competing group instead. So that would have been interesting if, if Upper Deck would have had the... Um, the intellectual rights of Fleer and then also purchased Tops. I don't even know if it would have been allowed at the time. I, you know, is that considered a monopoly? I don't know. You know, I, I, now it's not a big deal because the NBA chose that, and we'll go to that later. But, you know, who knows what would have happened then. 
All right. Um, shortly after the spring of 2007, um, a pair of NBA GMs and collectors and then manufacturers all had a tough decision to make. Do we go Greg Oden or do we go Kevin Durant? And I know there are a lot of people out there that would say, well, the choice was obvious. Um, you know, I don't think it was. Portland chose Odin. Um, Tops chose Odin as a spokesman. And for what it's worth, I, I was buying baseball cards at the time, but I was still watching basketball. And I picked Odin over Durant in my mock draft. Well, all three of us were wrong. You know, I knew he had the injury history in college. I know he walked funny. Um, but this was still in an era where big men were incredibly valuable. And at the same time, we didn't have a lot of hybrid type players like Durant to know what we were getting with him. He was scrawny. Um, he wasn't as sure of a thing as some people would lead you to believe. Um, but the rest is history. Seattle chose Durant. Upper Deck chose Durant. His exquisite RPA has become an iconic card. There have been a lot of alterations with those, and I've documented that in some of my other episodes in my tracker online. I'm not going to go into that too much here. Just know, though, that that info is out there. Uh, moving on to 2008, we had another promising crop of rookies that included Derrick Rose and Russell Westbrook. Uh, Michael Beasley and O.J. Mayo were very popular at the time, too. Um, instead of saving this for 2011, um, when he won the MVP, I'll mention it real quick that Derrick Rose cards were huge for a while in the hobby, especially because he was the youngest MVP winner. Um, the injuries really accumulated and his hobby stock crashed. But like I said, he was huge for a while, and some people probably don't realize that. Um, around the same time, this was 2008, kind of a, in the background, we need to keep in mind that the NBA card license was up for renewal soon and we weren't really sure what would happen um and that was when a european sticker company called panini and yeah they've they'd had some business in the basketball world before but nothing really in the the modern market well they decided that they wanted to make an aggressive push to get into the sport card business more specifically the basketball card business so they placed a very large bid on that NBA license. And around the same time, the NBA supposedly decided that they wanted to move to an exclusive license and partner with just one manufacturer. At least that's the way things were phrased. But everyone involved had their own version of things. So I'm going to read through a couple of those today, or a few of those today. I'll start with the NBA. They said... As we look to the future of our trading card business, there is general consensus, including with our current partners Tops and Upper Deck, that moving forward with an exclusive partner is the best way for us to energize the category globally. Okay, so they mentioned that Tops and Upper Deck are on board with having an exclusive, which seems a little strange, considering that exclusive means only one. So I'm wondering... If they didn't know at this point that Panini's bid was so big that, you know, well, they, they just knew they couldn't compete. And when I read the statement from Tops, that's the impression I'm getting. So Tops said, we've had a strong relationship with the NBA, but the deal they made with Panini does not make economic sense for Tops. 
It may be great for the NBA, but the value wasn't there for us, and we've decided to invest elsewhere for the time being. And then that leads us to the Upper Deck statement. Um, And they said, while Upper Deck is disappointed with the NBA's decision to grant exclusive trading card rights to a new licensee, they are reinforcing their commitment to producing the highest quality, most innovative, and value-rich basketball products. Our focus remains on delivering great products to the loyal collectors and consumers who have passionately supported Upper Deck basketball products. We are confident the remaining 2008-2009 NBA sets will be some of the best our industry has ever seen. Um, In other words, we didn't get the license. (laughs) It was Panini that did. Panini signed the exclusive in January of 2009. Um, They turned around in March and bought Donruss to form Panini America. So that was a pretty powerful move in the hobby. And that left Tops and Upper Deck to ride the rest of their contract out. And they basically had until the end of the 2009 calendar year. They also had a large inventory of game-worn items to choose from, and they made a pretty crazy run of products on their way out. There was some really nice stuff. Uh, For example, on the Upper Deck side, we had SP Game Used, which had a checklist of Logo Man cards. You know, some players had Logo Man cards numbered to 15, to 16, to 17. We complain about players having those cards numbered to 5 now, but imagine tripling that. And LeBron, he only got seven. <laughs> Imagine a set, a product with seven, uh, a LeBron Logo Man number to seven. Um, they did create a 2009-2010 exquisite set. It was supposed to be a secret for a while. Um, I think a sell sheet or a checklist eventually leaked out. It was a very rushed product. Some of the cards are pretty hacked up because they were, you know, just run through the machines in such a hurry. Um, they had older exquisite designs in there that brought that they brought back to commemorate the product, and it was a really nice way to go out. It was a really nice product. Um, Tops was making similar moves on their way out. They had a set with jumbo laundry tags, and I mean, I'm not just, you know, now we see that with rookies and it's no big deal, but I mean, we're talking Elgin Baylor, Pete Maravich, all the best current stars that they had material for. You know, these these were not just, you know, player-worn photo shoot tags that they just had a bunch of laying around. They they chose, you know, the best of the best that they had left. Um, they were really nice looking cards. Another interesting move they made, because they were running out of time, was including Topps Chrome as a part of the regular Tops release. And remember, this was the Curry rookie year. Curry, Harden, you know, Blake was the big one at the time. Tyreek Evans was big, right? DeRozan. Um, I think there was something like nine Chrome cards in every regular Tops hobby box. So all of this going on at once created a really interesting, one-of-a-kind crossroads in the basketball hobby. We had exquisite exquisite with um, one last licensed release commemorating some of their most popular sets you had tops incorporating chrome into their regular release and then you had panini building on this donruss brand which featured a little set called national treasures and overall there were some nice releases in panini's first couple of years in 2009 we had a set called elite that was branded as a Donruss set, but then Donruss came back as a standalone set in 2010. 
I felt like that was a big deal and, and that the name meant a lot for the card world. That was something that um, Panini could offer now that we hadn't really had before. You know, Donruss was more of a baseball thing, but it was established, and now they were bringing it to basketball. So I was happy with that. Um, I, I thought it was a really good-looking set, too, uh, a lot better than the ones we've had over the last several years. The, the current version feels very cheap to me, um, but 2010 was a classy product, and it also didn't break the bank. Um, of course, they had National Treasures again in the second year. They took Certified and rebranded it as Totally Certified. They had Absolute Memorabilia. Those are just a few of the sets. But I feel like they were um, definitely still trying to find their footing in the basketball world. And that's not a knock on them, necessarily. I mean, they were new. Um, that was expected. So, you know, they needed some time to do that. That's fine. The following season, I think, kind of helped them to gather themselves a little bit because there was a lockout in the NBA between July 1st and December 8th of 2011. And this delayed the regular season until Christmas. And as you can imagine, it affected the hobby quite a bit as well. If there's no basketball, you're not going to see much in the way of basketball cards either. We ended up seeing only a few products. There weren't any true rookies um, the draft picks that did get cards, those cards were considered an XRC or an extended rookie, um, but we didn't actually have rookies of those players at that time. Um, we did, however, see the return of the Hoops brand, which had been acquired by Panini. So that was another good move that they made. They're taking these hobby, these nostalgic hobby staples like Hoops and Donruss, and they're bringing them in. And, you know, I liked that. Um, so, you know, even without the rookie cards, it was nice to see the name Hoops back on a basketball card. Um, and then they included buybacks from the 89 set, which was pretty cool. Um, play resumed then in the NBA. Like I said, it's, the season started at Christmas. Um, February of 2012 rolled around, and then we had Lynn's Sanity, which was a big event in both the NBA and the hobby. For those who weren't watching then, this was when Jeremy Lynn was on the Knicks started putting up huge numbers out of nowhere. On the hobby side of that, his 2010 rookie stuff went crazy. Um, he also had an auto in the new hoop set, which made for good timing. Um, I remember they you started finding some of those um, 2010 packs started surfacing again in stores for from wherever they were holding them, and they had a sticker on them that basically said, you know, you can find Jeremy Lin rookies in here. So that, that's how big of a deal it was. They kind of pushed the products back out from the previous year that they still had left. Um, I also want to mention before I move on that Upper Deck still had a college license at this time. So they made new cards of the new draft picks that didn't have their rookies yet um, for their exquisite and their retro sets. The retro set was pretty cool because it marked the return of, of some inserts like John Belia or the Precious Metal Gems, the autographics, you know, even if they were in college uniforms, which a lot of people didn't like that. Um, those have become more popular over time, though, now that some of those sets are also still gaining in popularity. All right. Uh, well, seeing as there were no rookies in the majority of the 2011-2012 NBA products, Panini had to figure out what to do with them. And they ended up including them in the 2012-2013 products as part of a special double rookie class. 
I've talked about it before. Not only was it a combination of two classes, it was a combination of two really good classes. And it made for a very exciting 2012-2013 season, which made for a landmark year in the hobby. And that's where I'm going to end this week's episode. What? I know, a cliffhanger. I'm sorry. Boo. Boo this man. But anyway, let's get some closure to 2003 to 2011 first. Uh, Maybe you were collecting then and you have fond memories of that time. Maybe you were part of Lynn's sanity. Um, or maybe cards kind of allowed you to, to feel like you were a part of that. Maybe there was something I skimmed over that you think deserves more time. Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. Next week, I'll conclude this little three-part series. I promise there won't be a fourth part, so make sure to tune in. I also encourage you to check out some of the other fine programming that BenchClear Media has lined up for you in the next week. Right now, we've got four different shows, and the plan is to space that content out throughout the course of the week, so we always have something lined up for you, the listener. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.